That's all I have. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach thy word in this afternoon hour for the second time, we want to ask for a measure of thy spirit to be upon us now, that thy word would speak to us, that it would speak to the needs of the hearts that are gathered here, and that together, as we would look into it, it would do thy perfect work in us, providing exactly what we need, whether that be conviction or comfort, whether that be strengthening or humbling. Heavenly Father, that all things would be done to glorify thee. We want to pray now, especially for those who are going through difficulties, those that have chronic conditions, those who are sick, those who are aged and can no longer gather with us, those that uh, are separated from us for other reasons, Heavenly Father, be with them and speak to them even as we anticipate that thou wilt speak to us also this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God has opened uh, to Romans. I have two chapters before me. And perhaps we should read together the, from the third chapter, Romans chapter 3. Let's begin reading with the first verse. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness from the remission for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We heard a great deal this morning about the place of the law and what came through Jesus Christ. And perhaps there are some here who feel along with, say, the Jews of Paul's day, well, then what advantage has the law? If the law only condemns, what advantage has it? I would have been better off not knowing. And perhaps there are those here that were born and raised in Christian homes and feel the same way. It would have been easier for me if I had not known these things because I wouldn't have been accountable for them. You're looking at it the wrong way. You're looking at it the wrong way. There's a huge benefit to having to have been, have been taught these things, to know them from an early age. Paul, of course, all of Romans is one letter, and we're only looking at a small portion of it. Paul, logically, after showing how the law could not make those who attempted to follow it perfect, he now goes into this chapter by starting with, well, then what advantage has the Jew? And he answers it. He says, much every way. And he says, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, an oracle, that's an older word, perhaps not something you're familiar with. The most famous oracle in the ancient world was found at Delphi in Greece, where people would take money and go to these this priestess and give an offering and the priestess would mutter some 
funny thing and then someone would interpret that and that was supposed to be like your fortune. Uh, there, was, there was supposed to be a, a revelation that came with that. That's what an oracle is. A speaking to. A speaking of something that is hidden. So the hidden things of God were made known to the Jew. And in similar ways, for those that are raised in our circles today, you have the advantage of the things of God being explained to you. Now, because of what was said this morning, you may think, how is that an advantage? I'm simply, simply accountable at a higher level than those that haven't heard it before. And you've already told me that I can't keep this law of God. And if I couldn't keep the Old Testament law, what hope do I have of, of keeping the, the, the teachings of Christ that even tell me to love my enemies? Where's the advantage? I don't see it. The law came to reveal something about this mysterious God that the children of Israel served. Before that time, he was only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The, the invisible one, the one that they were supposed to not make any kind of a statue to represent. But they knew very little about him. They only knew what had been passed down from the fathers to them. And if I could sum it up, I think it would be put this way, that there was a God who created everything, He was a holy God and he had made a special promise to their forefather, to their, to their prime ancestor, Abraham, that there was going to come one through him, through his line, which they were a part of, that was somehow going to bless the whole earth. I think that's about all they knew. There was not a whole lot given. But Moses comes, and he shows them something through the law about this God of theirs. That their God is a holy God. Their God is a just God. But so much more than just that. That he's a God who even cares for the disadvantaged. He's a God who's interested in justice. And so he wants them also to apply a standard of justice to their own lives, that they were not to mis mistreat or abuse each other or even their servants or their animals for that matter. That this was a God that cared about even the widows and orphans. This was a God who said, if you give to me, I will give back so much to you that you won't even be able to contain it. He was a God who demanded everything from them, but would give them everything in return. He was a God who kept his promises. He was a God who established covenants with his people. Why does that matter? Well, for one, he's a God you can count on. He doesn't play favorites, overlooking the misdeeds of one, 
You know, if you look at the contrast between the God of Israel and the God of, say, the, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Greeks, it's been said that they were, uh, they were less noble than the human heroes of the Greek legends. They were not consistent. They were fickle. They picked favorites, and they, they did things in sneaky, underhanded ways, and they pouted, and they condemned sometimes innocent people. But the God of Israel was not to be compared with those gods who were no gods at all. So the advantage to the Jews was that they had learned, they learned something about the character of this invisible God through the law. And the promise was given, I read it just last night, Moses spoke the promise to the children of Israel. He said, there is coming a prophet like unto me, him you need to hear. The, the God that Moses revealed to the children of Israel, his role in revealing that God, there was going to come another prophet, only one, that was going to so alter and clarify their perception of this mysterious unknown God just like Moses did by giving the children of Israel the law. And we understand through Stephen's defense, actually, in Acts, that this man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was that prophet that came in the style of Moses, revealing something new that they had not known before. So let me repeat what I said earlier. So what advantage is, it, is there for those that are born and raised in Christian homes that hear these things from their youth? You know what God is really like. And you know what he expects. There is no being in this entire universe that is more winsome than our Heavenly Father. There is no one more loving, no one more kind, no one who has your best interest in mind with more clarity than God does, no one who is more interested in your own joy, fulfillment, and happiness than he is, no one who will welcome you more warmly then he will. You know this now. You see, in the rest of the world, people suffer, we heard it again this morning, under a wrong concept of God. They think of God as a stern and exacting taskmaster who wants to ruin their fun. That's totally wrong. God knows that you will find maximum joy and fulfillment in him, in returning to the Father's house. Read the parable of the prodigal son. In it, you'll see the story of humanity in miniature. It's all there. The one who was the son of the Father that left him, walked out on him, and ended up wasting everything he had, everything he was, in useless 
temporary carnality. And then, when he had nothing, realizing and returning, expecting that that father, or hoping that that father would receive him at least as a slave. And instead, finding the warm embrace of the father who didn't even wait till he'd been washed of the slop from the pigs, but embraced him and kissed him right there in the open. This son who had dragged the family name through the mud and done everything possible counter to his father. That's the God that you know about if you were born and raised in a Christian home. The God of second chances, the God of love, the God of mercy. The only thing he will not abide is people that presume upon his grace. That's all that I can find in Scripture. Those that would make assumptions about his character when it comes to sin. That's it. Why is it important that God is a judge? Have you ever asked yourself that question? We often look at it the other way around. Why are his standards so high? Do you realize that God could not be good if he was not just? What would you think of a judge who after hearing an emotional case of a man who had committed horrible atrocities, what would you think about the judge if the judge said, well, he's free to go? Wouldn't you say that that judge was evil? At least as evil as the man who committed those sins? Because when those sins were finally revealed and, and, and shown for what they were and the damage that they had done, that that judge would simply let him off? He could not be called good. He must of necessity be called evil if he didn't judge properly. You know, God's standards that he has given to his people, whether to the Jews or even to those of you that were born and raised in Christian homes and knew the way of God early, if you don't keep them, it doesn't do anything against God. I heard a story once about a, a son who had left his Jewish heritage and he spoke to his father, I guess after going away to university and coming back home and told his father that he no longer believed in the things that he had been taught, no longer believed in the God of his fathers. And he said to his father, what would you do if I broke one of these commandments? And his father simply answered, and I think truthfully, he said, you can't break the commandments of God. They can only break you. 
You see, the commandments of God, the standards of God, the things that he taught us are actually there as a safeguard, as a wall, as it were, to keep out those things that would destroy us. We see them as a a hindrance, a barrier, a prison even, to self-expression and independence. But in fact, they're the opposite. They're a safeguard and a wall, keeping you from destroying yourself. Thank God that you had Christian parents that taught you these things early. Because I dare say that the things that they taught you has kept you from a lot. I remember as a young man, though I struggled with faith, I wanted a Christian lifestyle. I wanted to become part of the church because I saw things there that I found very appealing. And the world I found to be a dark and dangerous and cruel place, but I felt safe here with people that loved me and that I loved. And that knowledge of the things of God and the understanding that one day, if I wanted to truly repent and become converted, I would have to go back and make right all of the things that I had done wrong. That kept me from an awful lot of sins. And to this day, I'm thankful that at least that part of my training kept me from those things. That doesn't mean that I didn't sin in other ways. But at least with sins that involved other people and other circumstances, I didn't have to go back and try to mend those things after the fact. Those teachings of my parents did indeed serve as a hedge, as was even prayed this morning, around me as a, as a child and even as a young man. And I'm thankful for that. You see, Perhaps you've had experiences like this, and if you've had children, I think you've definitely had experiences like this. You know, I remember someone saying, talking about what's the most difficult part of being a father. And uh, I remember one of the fathers saying, well, disciplining your children. I thought, nope. (laughs) That is one thing I have no trouble with. When I see one of my children abusing another one of my children, especially when it's one of the older ones, beating up on one of the younger ones, oh, I have no trouble laying down the law under those circumstances. But there have been times also where I've dished out the punishment and then found out afterwards that I didn't have the story completely right. And oh, that's humbling to go and apologize to your little one that you struck them in anger because you didn't wait to hear the full story. And I'm so comforted by verses like this that says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Don't you want the perfect judge to set everything right? Don't you want a judge who sees everything correctly? We say yes, 
Well, now what about you? What about your actions? You know, we see things crystal clear when other people are concerned. And we demand judgment on them. But an interesting hap- thing happens when it's, when it's our turn to be judged. When we've done something wrong, then we think mercy should be applied. God needs to judge. He's the only one qualified to judge. Now, of course, if none of us can keep his judgments, and that exalts him because it makes him more holy, then how are we at fault? That's Paul's next line of argument. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous? If all have, uh, are under this same curse, unable to keep the law, as we heard this morning, then isn't that a stacked deck? Aren't things loaded against us? No. Again, the problem is one of perception. There are some in Christianity who like to make a great deal of the later, latter half of this, this, or the mid portion of this chapter, where it talks about the, the condition of the human race and how condemned and evil it is. The point is not that we cannot do good sometimes. Just read what Paul wrote in the chapter preceding this about the Jews and the Gentiles. And if the Gentile keep by nature the things that are contained in the law, should not his uncircumcision now be counted for circumcision? So Paul lays out the argument that if there are people that do good, they're commended because of their good works. But here's the problem. We serve a good God. And as we said already, in order for him to be good, he has to be just. And a God who is holiness itself, who's thrice holy as he is called in scripture, cannot clear the guilty and cannot abide impurity in his presence. So the entire human race is condemned. That sounds like bad news, but it's actually good news in disguise. Because by taking that out of our hands, by saying none is righteous, no, not one, there is no preferential treatment for anyone. Those born and raised in Christian homes don't actually have the advantage you think they might have when it comes to salvation. Because it has, as it has been said before, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. By condemning all, God can show grace freely on all. And the only qualification he makes is what we heard this morning, faith. Why is that important?
because it's not up to you to perform. We know two things from Scripture. God gives grace to the humble, and he counts faith for righteousness. You put those two together, and now perhaps you can see why God had to do this this way and why he can be both he can be totally good by showing mercy and being just at the same time if you can admit that you cannot fix yourself and that you are indeed unrighteous god looks for that he says that's humility that admission of bankruptcy does nothing for your debt you still owe god has done nothing to wipe away the debt, but that condition, now God says, I can show grace to you. And that grace to you comes in the form of a Savior. What he's looking for now is a response to that grace. To realize, like Abraham did, right, very on that, on that one starry night that he walked out of his tent and looked up at the stars, God promised him this immeasurable good that out of this 90-year-old man would flow a, a multitude greater than the stars in heaven and through which would come this promised seed. And the only commentary that's given about him in, old, in the Old Testament in that section was it says he believed God. And it says specifically there that that faith was counted to him for righteousness. Do you want to be made right with God? Do you want to have that impossible righteousness that he is requiring? Simply believe. That's it. Simply believe. God, you are right. You're right about everything. You're right about me. You're right about my sin. You're right that I couldn't do a thing about it. You're right that I'm hopeless and helpless without you. You have to do it. And God said, yes, that's all I'm looking for that admission, the surrender of your will to mine, and out of that now flows all the goodness that we see reflected in the story of the prodigal son. The feasting, the rejoicing, the, the, the warm embrace, the kiss on the cheek, the ring on the finger, full acceptance in the family of God. So in short, be thankful. Be thankful if you've heard these things from your early youth. It's kept you. It's kept you safe. It's kept you from some of those, those things that you would have to afterwards go back and make right for and be ashamed of. It's kept you from scars. But also be careful. Be careful because like the older son, you may think that because you never went far that you're somehow better than the one who went all the way out into the world and wasted himself. That's not true. God loves both equally. And he sent his son who died in your place that you might be made the righteousness of God. That's an amazing thing. That's a, that's a spiritual thing. It's a simple thing. But I'm thankful that the Lord used the Apostle Paul to lay all of this out for us, to explain it for us, to unfold the whole thing as it were to our, to, to, to the, to, to our minds that we can we can see categorically the excuses that people make for not falling at the feet of the Savior, making those excuses just nothing, completely dispelling them, so that all that, all is, all that is left 
is that if you will come to that conclusion that God really has done everything possible that he could and the last thing that he's waiting for you is for you to surrender your will to him, if you can do that, then you also can taste of that blessedness he promised. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. To Amen. What a brother, please select. There was a short phrase I read from a book yesterday and I've been turning it over in my head ever since I read it. It has to do with God as our Father, for those of us that are his children. The author said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. I've been thinking about that. And you know, I think sometimes when we're Christians, we think about God as kind of an employer who's looking for a certain level of efficiency from us. And if we fall below that, careful, we may be next to be axed. And as long as we fulfill the minimum, well, that's acceptable. No. No, God is a father, not an employer. And I think where I saw this most clearly is with some friends of mine from church that have a special needs child. And they were explaining to me the delight that they had in the little accomplishments of that special needs child. And how those little things were so special because of the limitations of that one. They weren't comparing the whole child to the one who had special needs. Obviously, they're on different standards. And it's that way with us. God's easy to please. You know, with my own children, when they, when they want to help me, that really pleases me. When they imitate me, that pleases me. But as they get older and they fulfill the basic parts of the task, then it's more important with what attitude they do it. That's more what I want to see. It goes beyond the simple doing of the task. And now, what's your, where's your heart in this? And they get held to maybe a higher level. But I'm so pleased when they do it willfully, or willingly, and uh, um, even without being asked. That's such a blessing to me. God is easy to please. If we show him that our heart is in the right place, that we want to do his will, he's already pleased. But he's hard to satisfy. Because, as the song says, he giveth more grace as the burdens increase. And with new tasks, he gives more grace. And so there's a new lesson to be learned. But wouldn't we want it that way? Isn't that what makes anything in this world worth doing, the striving for it? You know, in the realm of athletics, say, you put your children maybe at a low level with, with, with small kids, some peewee level thing, but you don't expect the kid to stay there. You don't want a teenager playing with the peewee players. You want him to be challenged. You want him to move up. It's the same way with our Heavenly Father. He knows that we will feel a greater degree of reward and, and satisfaction in doing his will when the stakes become higher and higher as we, as we follow him. As the song says at camp, we sing it every year, deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus. And then the third verse, I think it is, says, higher, higher every day in the school of wisdom. That's what God wants from us. And that will please us. As much as the first step pleased him, everything we do afterwards, that continues to please him. So let's strive then for those of us that have 
made that first step, have surrendered our will to him and want to, want to go on with him, not to be satisfied with a status quo, but to seek to please him, to bring joy to his face every day, then we really will be truly children of our Father, which is in heaven. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. This concludes our service.